If you have been in attendance over the last month, you know that our pastor is preaching through the book of Jonah, a series that he has entitled Grappling with Grace. Today, Dr. Weldon is away preaching a missions conference in Atlanta. When he asked me to fill the pulpit for him, it was my desire to preach a text and topic that would complement the series that we're in. At the end of chapter 1, Jonah finds himself in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, as you recall. And Jonah then did the only thing that he could do in that circumstance. He prayed. Chapter 2 of Jonah gives us the words of that prayer. And as Dale pointed out a couple of weeks ago, as a devout Jew, Jonah's prayer vocabulary was filled with phrases found in the Psalms. Israel's liturgical resource of prayers and hymns. One of those psalms prominently found there in that prayer is number 88, the one before us today. In considering the tenor of this psalm, it completely makes sense that it would come to Jonah's mind. For Psalm 88 is the most desperate of all the psalms. Unlike the other suffering psalms of lament, there is no glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, no joyful resolution and confidence in a sovereign God, only darkness and suffering. Remember, Jonah didn't have the whole story during that ill-fated voyage on the sea. He didn't know that that fish was going to discard him in three days. Imagine his situation for a moment and the complete assurance he must have had that this was the end. His fellow sailors, after exhausting every other measure, finally gave in and threw him into the raging sea. And I don't know if Jonah was a good swimmer, but did it matter? He was as good as dead. But then if death by drowning wasn't a bad enough prognosis, he was eaten by a fish, only to retain consciousness while being digested in the beast's stomach. And all of this as a result of disobeying God, who no doubt in Jonah's mind had rightfully abandoned him to a slow and gruesome death. Can you imagine any scenario in Jonah's thought process where this was going to end well for him? I can't. Even if he could find a way outside of this soggy capsule he was in, then what? Tread water in the middle of the ocean until someone else came along to eat him? No wonder some of the words from Psalm 88 came to his mind. For the dark hole of unresolved suffering is the theme of the song before us. In his commentary on the Psalms, James Montgomery Boyce entitles the chapter on Psalm 88 with an ancient phrase that comes from medieval times the dark night of the soul. He goes on to say, it is good that we have a psalm like this, but it is also good that we have only one. It reminds us that life is filled with trouble even to the point of despair, even for mature believers. Please turn to Psalm 88 if you haven't already. We'll be reading through the entire psalm throughout the sermon, but allow me to read the first five verses for us as we begin. A song a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. 
I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this is a dark passage, one in which perhaps in most of the times of our lives we'd rather avoid, and yet it is your word. And we know, Father, that there are those times when your saints are in dire need of help, those times, the darkest times of life, in which we cry out to you. So use your word today to draw us closer to you and to have an understanding, a better understanding of prayer in the times of despair. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Most often we associate poetic expression with having the ability to take us to heights where normal conversation couldn't dream to go. No doubt there'll be a bunch of love sonnets floating around on Hallmark cards today, praising the attributes of the object of our affection. There are songs that celebrate triumphant victories in war and heroic deeds, as well as the grand hymns of the faith of praise and worship to the God of the universe. And yet we also see the power that poetry has to express the darker things in life. What a wretched lament is before us this morning. The psalmist, Haman the Ezraite, paints a depressing and desolate picture of how he sees his circumstances. Look again at the first five verses. And here we see that in his suffering, Haman feels as good as dead. He cries out in anguish continually. His prayer isn't some last-ditch afterthought. No, he is consumed with praying day and night, 24-7. He transitions right at the beginning from one who is near to death to being counted among the dead to being one in whom there is no strength and finally to being as one who is dead without the relief that only death can bring. The imagery is striking. He concludes, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. I can envision in my mind's eye a scene straight out of Saving Private Ryan or some other horrible war epic in which the battlefield is strewn with the dead who are ignored and out of the minds of the living who are imperceptibly just walking by them. They're gone and not worth any attention except that of the gravediggers. In his suffering, that's how Haman feels, as good as dead. Continuing in verse 6, we read, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. These are the verses that Jonah quoted when he was there, that sea imagery, the imagery of being in a very dark, watery place. In his suffering, Haman feels wounded by God. Haman's pain is magnified by the belief that it is God himself who has placed him here in this pit of destruction. Many modern-day preachers spend a great deal of energy trying to get God off the hook when it comes to suffering, proclaiming that God only wants what makes you happy in this life. He wants you to be healthy, happy, and rich in money and resources. 
Apparently, the God they represent can't help it when things go wrong in the world. His sovereign reign is somewhat limited, apparently. This is not the God of the Bible. Haman doesn't pull any punches in his suffering. He has no illusion that God is somehow not in control of his circumstances. On the contrary, he understands that God is right in the middle of it all, orchestrating the circumstances of his life. About these verses, Charles Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, says in his commentary that man's blows are trifles, but God's smitings are terrible to a gracious heart. To feel utterly forsaken of the Lord and cast away as though hopelessly corrupt is the very climax of heart desolation. We may not understand why God allows certain things in our lives, and we may not even see his hand working at the moment, but do not be fooled. Our God is right in the middle of every circumstance of your life. And so if there is any complaint or objection to be made, it's rightly directed towards him. His agony continues. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. In his suffering, Haman feels abandoned and alone. His friends can't even look at him. They avoid running into him into the halls of the church, perhaps because they don't know what to say. They've run out of spiritual jargon and platitudes to speak to someone who is obviously going through a spiritual dry spell. Or perhaps Haman doesn't have quite enough faith. Or maybe he's under God's judgment. Whatever the cost or whatever the issue, he is to be avoided. And we can't make eye contact with him. His world has collapsed in around him and his spiritual claustrophobia, in his spiritual claustrophobia, he sees no escape route from his condition Driven to such despair, he can no longer sit still with his head bowed in prayer. Through tears of sorrow, he spreads out his hands to God in despair and asks a series of rhetorical questions that he already knows the answer to. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Alone and forsaken, poor Haman only has death to look forward to, for at least then the pain will stop. He has no hope or confidence that there is anything beyond death, but to be out of existence was apparently a better prognosis than continuing in his current state. He didn't have the eyes of faith that some of the Old Testament saints had, and he didn't have the new covenant that we have, and there seemed to be nothing beyond this life. How sad and what despair was his. As is the case with other saints, Haman's depression was real and acute. Again, quoting Spurgeon, the mind can descend far lower than the body. For it, there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Here at this point in a typical psalm of lament, we would expect a transition into renewed hope and faith. But instead we read in verse 13, 
But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. In his suffering, Haman pleads for grace, and he asks two more questions, but these are not rhetorical questions. These are questions that demand an answer. And at some point in life, nearly every one of us will ask the same two questions in some manner or another. God, why do you cast my soul away? And why do you hide your face from me? Lord, why have you thrown me over? And where are you? Finally, in his suffering, Haman despairs. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And so this song ends in the darkness. The translators of the English Standard Version have done us a great service in their translation. For as darkness is the last word in the ESV, so it is in the original Hebrew. What a depressing song. Why would God include such a hymn in his hymnal? To what end does it serve? Are you able to identify with Haman? Have you found yourself in similar circumstances? Maybe you're there even now in some measure or another. Are you close to despairing? I submit that the inclusion of this psalm is nothing short of a great mercy from our God. For there are times when God's people suffer for long periods of time with no resolution here on earth. There are many who suffer with unimaginable physical pain or terrifying mental anguish with no relief in sight. This psalm comes alongside us it gives words to our prayer. It sits in silence with us in our suffering like a good friend with no trite words of encouragement or judgmental reprimands. Most of the time in our darkest moments, we don't need instruction. We need consolation. Haman gives us that. This psalm can silence the naysayers and friends that try to convince us that we've done something to deserve this treatment or that if we just had enough faith, God would rescue us and make us happy again. Job's friends did just that with impunity while he suffered alone, didn't they? Job, too, really had no complete resolution to his suffering. Sure, he had his wealth restored and got a new family, but he wasn't given an explanation for what he went through, nor did the reality of his former loss ever go away. And so even in its lack of resolution, this psalm is not only a prayer of despair, but a prayer of grace. For a few other observations, let's go back to the very beginning of our text. Not simply to verse 1. But even before that, to the heading of this psalm, it reads a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, 
to the choir master, according to Mahaloth Leonoth, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. So this hymn of worship belongs to the sons of Korah. Who were the sons of Korah? In First Chronicles, David appoints leaders in musical worship, three of them. Haman, the singer, Asaph, and Ethan, or Jedithan. These, along with their kin and offspring, are part of the musical guild of the Old Testament temple musicians known as the Sons of Korah. A number of psalms in volumes 2 and 3 of the Psalter bear their names, and it's clear from other passages that these guys were the chief vocal and instrumental worship leaders or musicians in tabernacle and temple worship. We might imagine quite a lineage for these servants of the Lord. Korah was undoubtedly a great spiritual leader for his offspring to deserve such an honorable position in the Levitical order. According to Scripture, Korah was the great-grandson of Levi and first cousin to Moses and Aaron. He was part of that generation that were freed from slavery in Egypt and made the exodus. And he was a leader among the tribes. In Scripture, we see that after Israel leaves Egypt, you'll remember the story, perhaps, they cross the Red Sea. God then miraculously provides for them in manna and water and quail for their survival. Then he meets them at Sinai, gives Moses the law, establishes worship. But unfortunately there, there were 3,000 who would not follow the Lord, and they were killed for their idolatry and rebellion. Then Israel strikes camp. They head for the promised land. They get to Kadesh Barnea. They are so close. So they send out 12 spies who come back and say, things look great, it's paradise, but we're outmatched and we'll never take it. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, said, let's go for it. God has promised us the victory. Unfortunately, as is most often the case, the majority rules, and the people sided with the ten, and they grumbled and rebelled. So God struck down those ten men with a plague and told his people that they would wander around for 40 years and that that generation would not enter the promised land. Well, then they repented and were sorry. So they woke up the next day, they changed their minds, and they said, let's go get them. And Moses said, no, 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 God is not in it. And sure enough, they were thrashed and defeated. After all of that, one tribal leader steps forward and together with 249 other chiefs, they decide that they want a change of leadership. Moses isn't working out, and they're going to do a hostile takeover. Listen to what happens to those guys. The ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. With their households and all the people who belonged to them and all their goods, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So what does this little story have to do with anything? Remember the guy that led this little rebellion? His name was Korah. He was Moses' cousin. The one whose family line would be the musical leaders of worship in God's house. But wait a minute, you might be saying. You said that the earth swallowed everyone up, including the families and possessions of these guys. 
Well, 10 chapters later in the book of Numbers, we are given an account of a new census taken of the people of Israel. And at one point in the accounting, the story of Korah and his followers is relayed briefly, no doubt to explain the giant hole of missing people in the census. At the end of that accounting is this short phrase, but the sons of Korah did not die. What? Why not? Why would God spare the children of the ringleader of that thing and and kill all the other people's children and families? doesn't make any sense. God's ways are not our ways. God had planned for this, plans for the sons of Korah. These children of the rebellious enemy of God were to be set apart for all generations as the leaders of worship in the house of God. Oh, what grace and mercy our God demonstrates to his people. Every time God's people open the divine hymnal to the hymns of the sons of Korah, before we even sing a note, we are reminded that the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Grace, grace, grace. Haman was a descendant of Korah. He knew what it was like to be a recipient of God's grace. His lineage taught him that God is good and gracious to his people and that God is glorified through his people's suffering and weakness. When Paul was denied relief from the Lord for his thorn in the flesh, he replied, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If God can glorify himself through the worship leadership of the likes of the sons of Korah, surely he is glorifying himself in all aspects of our suffering and weakness. In the time of our greatest weakness, perhaps the knowledge that Christ is glorifying himself and empowering us through that weakness can be a source of comfort to us. In addition to his priestly role as worship leader, what kind of man must this Haman the Ezraite be who gave us this, his singular entry into the Psalter? Well, we're given a few glimpses in some other portions of Scripture, most notably in 1 Kings chapter 4. Listen to these words. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Haman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all their surrounding nations. Solomon was a wise man. How wise was he? Think of the wisest men in the known world, and he was wiser than that. Yes, our depressed psalmist is named along with his brothers as being outmatched in wisdom only by King Solomon. In another passage, we find that this band of brothers served as skilled instrumentalists and vocalists in the tabernacle temple worship, as we've already discovered. Haman was no slouch or whimsical figure given over to passion and flightiness. We might expect someone like that to be prone to depression and mood swings. 
No, this man was a priest who led others in the worship of God, a sage who was sought out for his wise counsel, and a disciplined musician who excelled at his craft. To think that those who are the most gifted and the most spiritual among us, that the priests and preachers can experience such depths of anguish and depression must be an encouragement to us as well. All believers experience suffering. And sometimes, as in the case of Haman the Ezraite, suffering that is unresolved in this life. We may feel alone, but the reality is that we are not alone in our suffering. And there is some comfort in that. Yes, it is true that my suffering is my suffering and yours is yours. No amount of, hey, I've been through that before, I get it, I, I understand. None, no amount of that can help to assuage our journey through the darkness. It is our journey to walk with Christ alone. And yet, many, many saints have gone down this road of despair before us. May that knowledge bring us a level of comfort as well. Finally, the cross makes sense of our suffering. We read in the opening line of verse 1 of the psalm, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. The mere fact that Haman had the wherewithal to even utter a prayer is where much of the hope of this psalm is found. That in his complete despondency, he still prayed. If there were no God, if there were no one that would stoop to hear, then the prayer would not be here and we would be of all most miserable. But praise God that he, the God of our salvation, is there and is listening whether or not we perceive it to be so and whether or not we experience any relief in this life. Haman knew in spite of how his circumstances seemed that there was only one place to take his pain and anguish. Haman did not have the vantage point that we do. He couldn't look back to the completed work on the cross, but he could look ahead in faith to the God of his salvation, the one source of hope that he had in his suffering and despair. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Our hope is not getting through our temporal sufferings to some better state in this life. Our hope is that as we share in his sufferings, we are being made like Christ and our joy will be fulfilled when his glory is fully revealed. Our hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. We must also ask ourselves where we see our Savior in this passage. Oh, Christian, if it has not leapt off of the page already, go back and reread the psalm with New Testament eyes of faith. Has there been any greater anguish and suffering than what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane when our beloved Christ pleaded with his Father for another way? Or upon the cross when the second person of the Trinity was forsaken by his Father as he bore the penalty for the sins of his people? 
Oh, what hell and darkness our Savior endured for his people. Is Jesus here in this psalm? Oh, yes, he is. His imprint is all over it, and we need only to drop to our knees in thanksgiving and worship for the suffering that he endured on our behalf. Our greatest need is not relief of temporal suffering. Our greatest need is to be saved. Jesus suffered the wrath of God and the eternal suffering that was ours that we might find favor with God and have eternal life. If you find yourself outside of the family of God, then run to the cross, to the God of your salvation. Find in him your all in all. Trust in Christ alone to save you from your sin. If you're a believer who is under the anguish of unresolved suffering, the answer is the same. Cry out, even as Haman did, to the God of your salvation. Run to the cross. Look at the suffering Savior. Pour out your complaint to him. Find in him your all in all. So we conclude that this psalm of despair and despondency is also a psalm of grace. We need only the eyes of faith to see it. May the Lord give us such discernment and eyesight that we may glorify him even in times of despair. Let's pray. O God of our salvation, you who came and dwelled among us, you who lived in this sinful fallen world, you, the one who Hebrews tells us is an empathetic high priest, understanding our condition, knowing our suffering, you who experience suffering beyond anything any of us will ever experience. Be our comfort. Be our high tower. Be our stronghold. May we find our solace in you and in you alone. Father, for those today that are suffering in darkness, those that can identify with Haman, the Ezraite. Be a God of comfort to them. Send your spirit in this time of need. Help them to cry out to you. Give them words to pray. And enable them, Lord, to see you in the middle of their crisis and despair. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.